Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. It's episode 200. Oh my God. And I am not alone. I have somebody here to help me with listener questions. You're very welcome. So I have here with me the designer of the Weird History Podcast website and logo. Yep, I did do that. Yep, that's who you are, right? Yep, that's me. Tell, tell, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you tell the people who you are? <laughs> uh, I'm Sarah Giffro. I run a design studio here in Portland, and uh, we're also married, so I hear a lot of things that come out of this podcast, and now I'm on it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being for being on with me. You're welcome. I, I seriously appreciate it. I know. <laughs> okay. Do you want to do you want to uh read out some of the people's questions? Yeah, yeah, let's kick this off. All right. Okay. Um first question we have is from Rick Louie or Lewis. I'm not entirely sure and I'm sorry. But they ask after 200 episodes, you have no doubt gained insights into many specific stories, eras, places, and events, just as you have helped your listeners do. Hey, kudos, by the way. <laughs> but has this also resulted in new ways of thinking about history overall? Have the questions that you ask, the factors you consider, the context you apply changed since starting the podcast? Thanks. Uh, thank you, Rick. Um I really do appreciate that. Uh, a few things. Um, one, uh, the more you learn about stuff, the more you learn how much you don't know about stuff. So doing this podcast has made me realize that every single topic is deeper than you think it is. Like, you might think that it's easy to become well-versed in something in a day or two, and it is... It is not. Uh, there's always more. And if you're somebody like me who wants to do, um, I like to think of this as reporting or communicating about something, you have to be content with uh, hitting a lot of high points and also acknowledging what you don't know. So when I approach a topic, I try to say, okay, what are the most important factors? And also, what are the things that I am still going to be ambiguous about, even after doing lots of reading about this? Another thing that's become much more important to me in terms of historical contact, context is sources. Where is this coming from? Uh, because very often you'll see a bunch of tertiary sources, like books or articles for a popular audience, that are citing a primary or secondary source or even another tertiary source and they are putting a particular spin on it that that initial source doesn't necessarily support or there are primary sources that might not make sense to a popular audience so there are things that uh might be a primary source that anyone can check out but unless you are an expert like you might not be able to understand them um, I think a good example of this is that Naomi Klein recently did a book 
about um, persecution of gay people, of LGBTQI people throughout history, and she thought that death recorded meant executed, but instead death recorded meant that they were not put to death. They were sentenced to death, but not actually killed. And she only found that out in an interview with the press. And the thing is, that is something in a primary source that you could only really know if you were an expert and if you were familiar with the topic and the subject matter. So, yeah, I'd say there's always more. There's always stuff that you don't know. There's always more to know. Uh, always check the primary sources and then check what the experts say about the primary sources. So that's a lot. And I know that's that's hard, but I think doing that is um, kind of best practices if you are a history communicator. Yeah, this is not an easy job, people. We're doing a lot of work behind the scenes. It, Yeah, like... I, I think that every minute of podcast, um, there is like, I don't know what it comes out to. It's a lot. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, next up we have hashtag taco revolutionary. Hey, I love tacos. Good job on you. Um, and they ask, I've always been curious as to how history podcasters who do episodes on a bunch of different topics go about picking those topics. Do you have a process for picking them, or is it just whatever comes to mind? Okay. Um, it is a lot of things. Uh, I have a Google Doc where I write down basically all of the interesting stuff that I hear about from just being in the world, like reading articles, talking to people, listening to other podcasts, that kind of thing. And when I hear about an interesting like thing, I will write that down as a future episode um yeah and sometimes it's just like sometimes it could be like somebody saying hey joe did you hear about this one thing this one time maybe it's an episode and i was like oh my god i'll check that out and sometimes yeah it is episode worthy oftentimes there are like weird asides in other books or um weird asides in like books or articles um that I was like, huh, that could be a weird history episode right there. Like when I was doing the um, episode about whether Taiwan was a country or not, um, this is probably going to be a future episode, but apparently there was this Frenchman who claimed to be a person from Formosa uh, in Europe during the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his name was George Salamancer. He claimed to be a Formosan. <laughs> uh, his first like con was that he like, claimed to be a an irish person but apparently there were enough like people who know what an irish person was actually like that they didn't fall for it <laughs> so he's like well what other island nation can i impersonate uh how about this one that's like way over there that a lot of them haven't been to so that was just something that came up when i was researching the taiwan episode and that'll probably turn into a future episode um i try to jump around in time and place so i don't want to do too many episodes that are about one particular place or one period of uh, one particular time period in a row. So if I've been in the United States, I'll try to go to Asia. If I've been in Asia, I'll try to go to Europe. If I've been in Europe, I'll try to go to Mesoamerica or Africa or Australia, or we haven't done any episodes about Antarctica yet or space or whatever. Um, because I don't want it to become too much of one thing. So that's something that I, that I try to consider. 
Okay. Kimberly Griffiths asks, what is your favorite dinosaur and why? Uh, my favorite dinosaur is Sue the T-Rex. Sue the T-Rex. Uh, we did an episode about them. Uh, episode 23, a dinosaur named Sue. And also, Sue is at the Chicago Field Museum. Um, I have seen them. By the way, Sue is of indeterminate gender because I don't know what type of Tyrannosaur it was. So Sue on Twitter emphasizes that they use they, them pronouns. And yes, on on Twitter, uh, whoever is in charge of the Sue the T-Rex account uh, is amazing. It is constant jokes about being a millions of year old dead dinosaur and uh, they are just killing it. So... Sue is my favorite dinosaur. My other favorite dinosaur is any theropod that is portrayed with feathers. Theropods are like T-Rexes and Velociraptors to so like, you know, those types of things. Yep. Um, anytime a T-Rex or a Velociraptor or a Deinonychus or uh, another one of those is made to look like a prehistoric murder chicken, I love it. Like... <laughs> So Sue the T-Rex and Theropods with Feathers are my favorite dinosaurs. All right. Rob Coughlin asks, I thought the little fellows that attacked the fat Coke-drinking thief in JP1 were rather cute. What dinosaur would you clone? Okay. Uh, I actually asked pe- I actually said on Twitter, I hope people ask me what my favorite dinosaur is. And I guess folks responded. Um, I believe those were Probo Compisagnathus. Um the movie didn't say, but they were in the book. Yeah. In the book, they actually eat John Hammond. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's like much more of a villain in the book than in the movie. In the movie, he's like a nice grandfather. And in the book, he's like an evil corporate guy. Um, I would clone. Here's the thing. I would clone a Stegosaurus. But I wouldn't make it a full-size Stegosaurus. I would make it a small pet-sized Stegosaurus like the size of a cat. When I was growing up, one of my favorite stuffed animals was a stuffed Stegosaurus. I named him Stego. And he was like my favorite teddy bear type thing. So I think that this is something that the Jurassic Park movies have really dropped the ball on. And I'm not the first person to say this. Many other people have had this particular hot take. People don't want bigger dinosaurs like the Indominus Rex people want small and cute dinosaurs that they can have as pets. So I would clone a Stegosaurus and I would name him Stego Jr. in honor of my stuffed Stegosaurus from childhood. And I would hope, and hopefully the Stegosaurus would um, be kind of dog or cat like. (laughs) So yeah, small, cute dinosaurs people could have as pets. It is a million dollar idea Get on it, Jurassic Park movies. Um, yeah, like why isn't why isn't that in our like main dinosaur clone property yet? Yeah. Okay. A of all the the Stego cuddly toy thing is super precious, and B of all, clearly the Jurassic Park people haven't seen the Land Before Time because I don't even know how many of those movies they are, but there are cute little small dinosaurs in it, and people love it. Oh yeah, yeah. Anywho, Rob Coughlin also asks, being a doggo lover and having heard you chat about some remarkable dogs, what type of dog do you have 
And what is your favorite breed? Oh, God. Well, (laughs) the kind of dog that I have is... This is a very sad answer. The kind of dog that I have is a kind that um, is not alive anymore. (laughs) No, I hate it! (laughs) I mean... Ah... Do you want to tell them about Rufus? I don't know if I'm ready for that right now. <laughs> okay. Um, Rufus was a 17-year-old Jack Russell Terrier that we didn't technically own, but we were long-term fostering for a friend of Sarah's. He was a very dear old man dog, and we had the worst day ever a while ago when... We were on a river trip with some folks where we were on these floaty things on this Oregon River, and it was supposed to be this like idyllic summertime romp. And um, we ended up going over some rapids, and one of our friends ended up dislocating our arm, her arm. So we were all sort of standing there on the shore waiting for the boat EMTs to arrive while she was in an immense amount of pain and shock. That kind of killed the day there were plans for like maybe hanging out and drinking beer around a bonfire after that but we didn't do that we just went home then we went home and we found rufus in our backyard and we thought he had heat stroke we tried to treat him for that by cooling him off you took him to the vet yeah i did um and he had actually had a stroke so his back legs were no longer working so um so that was pretty much it it was it was decided that it was his time and his real mom was gave the okay so uh, oh yeah um he had a long and he had a long and excellent life and and was very loved by all who knew him yeah um i will say though that and uh that was awful that was an awful day like our like summer fun times were ruined through injury um our dog had a stroke it's kind of our dog yeah i mean totally (laughs) yeah our dog had a stroke and he had to cross the rainbow bridge and then i'm not making this up the next morning i woke up and went to the dentist (laughs) um (laughs) because so many good things had to happen in a 24-hour period But I remember going out with Rufus on the very last day of his life in the morning and we went to a park near our house and I took him off his leash and in this enclosed area um, and he ran around at this joyous, like joyous doggy speed that Jack Russell Terriers are known for and he was active and happy and I hope that I have that, that amount of activity and joy on the last day of my life and i find that like genuinely inspiring uh and because of him i have a soft spot now for jack russell terriers now growing up um my stepmother brought home a dog from the middle east that she just found um his name was buster he was very cute we don't know what type of dog he was and we suspect he might have actually been a fox um so they just let her take a fox across the border (laughs) possible fox we don't know (laughs) like no one was actually sure like what buster was she was just like this street creature she found in jerusalem and was like i have a dog now he was really cute he was great 
okay. Yeah. Yeah, I miss I miss Buster. We also had some few schnauzers when I was growing up. They're cool. Anyways, I like all dogs. What type of dog do we have now? We we have a cat now. His name is Zerglin. Yes. He's the cutest cat in the whole world. He has a he has a Instagram. If you want to follow our cat on Instagram. <laughs> follow our cat on Instagram at, at Lil Zergling. That's L-I-L. C-E-R-G-L-I-N-G. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Always hungry, never poorly dressed. He has both ties. He has four of them. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, we're going to just keep talking about animals for a little longer because Rumda asks, "What's your favorite non-dinosaur extinct animal?" So, uh I would say the Uintotherium. The Uintotherium is a very large extinct mammal that Otniel Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope uh fought over in the Bone Wars. Uh, I did an early episode on the Bone Wars, and they both claimed to have discovered this thing, and they were like horrible mean girls to each other about who found you Ethereum first. Uh, so yeah, it has a special place in my heart. Also, when I was recording that episode, I had to say Ethereum a bunch of times and do that take again and again uh, because it has a long, difficult name. Um, my other favorite non-dinosaur extinct animal is the Dimetrodon. It is that uh, lizard-looking thing with a giant sail on its back. It is not a dinosaur. It is actually more closely related to mammals than dinosaurs. Uh, and local Portland band The Double Clicks have a great song about the Dimetrodon and how it is a symbol for not fitting in. You're not a dinosaur, you're not a mammal, you don't know how to feel, and that's adorable. So yeah, search for Dimetrodon by the Double Clicks, and you'll have some feelings about a um, pre-dinosaur, sail-backed, uh, not reptile. Uh, it's great. I also have a Dimetrodon pin on my backpack that Corey Bing, who was a guest on the show, made. It glows in the dark. Yeah, Dimetrodons are pretty cool. Mm-hmm. All right. We have next a question from Doug KC. He says, Hi, Joe. This is Doug KC. Longtime listener. First time Q and hair. Love the cast or the pod, whichever makes me sound douchier. My question is this. Where is podcasting heading? With so many podcasts out there, so much quality free content, are we steering towards a critical mass of historical podcasts? Are we pregnant with podcasts? I guess that also leads me to wonder, is this format of history storytelling getting played out? What is the next thing we interact with when we move beyond this format for historical-based media? Is video-based historical communication, like J.D. Chandler and J.B. Fisher series, what more people will interact with? What will this genre look like when you record your 500th podcast? Use your steampunky scrying glass with the fog and the gears and shit, or throw those gnarly knot on Popeye's chicken bones and tell us what you see, man. God. So that is from Doug, the host of the wonderful kick-ass organ history. 
Uh, Doug is great, as is the other two local Portland history guys, J.D. Chandler and J.B. Fisher, whom he mentioned. Um, is this format getting played out? Well, I really hope not, because I really like history podcasting. Um, I, I love this format, and I think that podcasts are actually a really good way to tell long stories. Um, shout out to, uh, Jamie from the British History Podcast, who is telling an extremely long story in like 25 minute chunks so he's gone from uh prehistory of britain to now the he has a bit before i believe he's in like the 900s now and he's getting there incrementally and that's a story i would have never sat down and consumed in book form um i would have never said like you know what i'm going to do i am going to read this like long uninterrupted story about uh this one thing that goes on for thousands and thousands of pages uh i wouldn't do that but you say oh this is a thing that you can listen to every week on your commute it takes like 20 minutes or so and we're just going to keep putting them out and it's going to keep like staying engaging yeah i'll do that i'll sign up um also sometimes uh also podcasts are a great way for (laughs) people who are distracted to still consume information um one of my favorite ways to uh listen to podcasts is while cooking so um sarah i'm sure that like you've heard me plenty of times uh in the kitchen making something listening to a podcast and it's like oh yeah i'm you know making dinner and also listening to like roman mars talk about the history of architectural modernism or whatnot and I'm really glad that uh, I can be kind of intellectually stimulated while also performing some kind of mundane task. Um, that's really valuable to me. Uh, I also listen to podcasts while running. Uh, they're a great distraction from the um, pain and monotony of jogging for long periods of time. In fact, podcasts will sometimes incentivize me to run farther. Sometimes I will keep going on a run because i'm into a podcast and i want to run long enough that i finish it which is i think i think that's a good and healthy habit but is it played out i don't know i'm the wrong person to say because i love this medium so much i consume a vast amount of podcast every week um video like the problem with video is that like you can't carry it around with you you can't do video on the bus. I mean, I guess you can be that guy who's like watching YouTube's on the bus, but it's it's weird. Um, you can't like do video when you are, you know, going to the store or whatever. That demands your eyes and ears. This just demands your ears and you can multitask. And when I record this, I think about that person who is multitasking, who is, you know, doing their laundry or preparing food or loading their dishwasher or you know exercising or on their commute or that kind of thing and i'm hoping that i am making their mundane task um a bit better with the story i'm telling them i'm also hoping that i can make things that sometimes feel daunting like the long form series we've done about italian fascism and uh, north korea and i would like to do another long form series again at some point 
I hope I can make those big topics more manageable by breaking them into uh, commute long chunks. And I think that's good work and that's important work. I don't know if it's played out. I sure hope not, but I'm the wrong person to ask because I love the medium so much. And I hope in my 500th podcast, um, honestly, I hope it's my job. Yeah. I hope that when I get to 500 episodes, this is like what I'm doing full time. That is kind of the goal here. Speaking of Jamie, who oh you God. mentioned earlier, oh God, <laughs> he very thoughtfully sent this question. Disneyland's Star Wars land is opening just as we are expecting our first child. On an unrelated note, how do you feel about babysitting an infant for a long weekend? Okay, so uh, Jamie and Dr. Z from the British History Podcast are having a kid, and I am sure their kid will be um, brilliant, or I don't know, maybe their kid, they're, they're both like, maybe their kid will rebel eventually by turning into Alex P. Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like joining the Young Republicans to piss off mom and dad. No, their kid will be great. Um, I've never been to Disneyland, dude. We want to go to Star Wars land. I don't know. I want to go. Uh, I find a like baby. I don't know how infants work though. Like we we don't have kids other than our cat. Um, I don't know. How would you want to deal with an infant? Put out some kibble for them. Uh, yeah. I mean, you you can just like leave a dish with a pile of food in it, and they'll just come and eat it. Right. That's that's how babies work. I am eighty percent sure that's how babies work. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and like the cat totally won't try to fight with the baby or anything. Actually, our cat's very well behaved. He would not do that. No, he wouldn't. They would be friends. In fact, I think that we could probably delegate much of the child care to Zergling. Yeah, you could just pick up this infant by by the scruff and just carry the infant around the house. So, even though he's a dad and not a mom, I'm sure he could learn. <laughs> So, Jamie and Z, um, if that is what you want for your child for a long weekend, we are happy to provide. Sounds great. <laughs> okay. And to close things out, um, we've got some interesting things planned for the future of the podcast. Would you like to share some of that with the rest of the class? So, big announcement. Um... After June, we are moving off of Patreon and onto a membership system. And there are all kinds of reasons for doing this. So one of the things that I've wanted to do for a while is uh, instead of having a Patreon, have members of the show who get bonus content. So we've already rec recorded some bonus content. We sure have. Yeah, Sarah has also uh, asked me about like behind-the-scenes questions about the Italy and Korea series. Um, so those are recorded. And how it's going to work is that if you become a member, you will get access to a feed with more episodes in it. Uh, we are going to phase out the Patreon, and that is, that is going to last through, uh, through July. But after July, the Patreon is going to go away. And starting in August, it is going to be just membership. So as you're hearing this, there's one more month of Patreon. Don't cancel your Patreon this yet. Like, don't not become a member yet. Like, keep doing that for one more month. But in July, 
we are going to start transitioning by August is going to be a membership program. There's a number of reasons for this. A big one is that Patreon takes a chunk of coin and with a membership program, um, more of what you donate will go to the podcast as opposed to going to a third party. Um, Patreon's also made some decisions that have revealed them to be occasionally volatile and we want to go to a more sort of stable thing. Also, I want to offer a substantive thank you to people who donate to the show. So having a feed of bonus content, like behind-the-scenes stuff and extra things and all that, uh, is, I think, a really good way of saying uh, thank you so much for your support. Uh, And so we are going to finally make that happen. So get ready. And I I will keep talking about this through the next month as we move on to the new system. It's going to be great. Hold on to your butts. It's going to be great. (laughs) Thank you for the last minute Jurassic Park reference. (laughs) You're most welcome. We talked so much about dinosaurs. It was right there. I mean, dinosaurs are on the logo. They are. I mean, they're the background for the logo. The Yes, that you made. (laughs) Yes, I did do that. Right. Well, okay. (laughs) Charles Knight painted Leaping Laylaps, which is the painting that we use for the Weird History Podcast logo, but... Sarah, yeah, you. I made the I made the type, the pretty type. So I do not paint dinosaurs. But you, you were the one who actually said that like that's a cool looking dynamic painting. We should use it use it for our for the podcast. It is very on brand for Joe. It's also public domain. <laughs> that's also a useful point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I hope to do actually a uh, show about Charles Knight, um, the painter of dinosaurs, in the near future. That would be cool. Yeah. Sarah, thank you so much for uh, giving voice to the people's questions. You are most welcome. You are most awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, folks. Talk to you next time. Bye.